annual soap sculpture contest, carvers from 6 to 86 give a demonstration of their craft. White soap is the medium. It's inexpensive and easily handled and offers an excellent opportunity to translate artistic ideas into actuality. Soap sculpture now has an estimated quarter of a million practitioners, many of whom proceed to more complicated materials. This is not an advertisement. It's a new spot from 1950. It starts with a shot of women and children around a table scraping, dusting, and cutting into individual bars of soap. The winners in the competition, which attracted 5,000 entries, are The Wrestlers by Donald Stewart of Dorchester, Massachusetts, Ferdinand by Jack Pennell of Columbus, Ohio, and Insomnia by Leo Storch of Long Beach, New York. The Wrestlers is a piece with two chunky men twisted over one another, their arms and legs perfectly tangled and intertwined in a slightly geometric embrace. Ferdinand resembles the bull from the classic children's book. An insomnia looks like a piece of modern art, a massive angular head covered in a nightcap, almost smothered by sheep. You can see the work that went into each piece, the time, the care, the creativity to beat out the other 5,000 participants. For the art's quarter million practitioners, it's an example of a pure passion project. But there's a catch. You couldn't carve with just any bar of soap. It had to be white soap, actually ivory soap. See, this carving competition did not begin at a little craft fair or in a school. It began in the mind of Edward Bernays, a consultant hired by the Ivory Soap Company to improve their sales by getting children to use soap. Bernays was not in the business of better advertising. He was a public relations pioneer famous for dramatically changing the way we live in order to support the brand that was paying him. And his strategy was groundbreaking. Bernays generated events, the events generated news, and the news generated a demand for whatever he happened to be selling. It all started when a sculptor reached out to Procter & Gamble asking for a big block of soap for sculpting. Bernays immediately saw this as an opportunity for publicity. In 1924, he decided to launch a soap carving competition Instructions explained that discarded models could also be used for the face, hands, and even a bath. The soap carving contest that Bernays started continued for a massive 35 years. One successful campaign in a lifetime packed with them. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising. The good, the bad, and of course, the ugly. here to talk more about Bernays and how he revolutionized more than public relations is best-selling author Larry Tai. Larry is an award-winning journalist who's written several books and his latest is on Bobby Kennedy but we're here to talk about his first one and it's called The Father of Spin, Edward or Eddie L. Bernays and the Birth of Public Relations. So thanks Larry, um, nice to be talking to you. Good to be talking to you. Going back in time, this is a man who managed to get women to smoke. He he claims to have put bacon and eggs on breakfast tables, um, ivory in soap dishes, books in bookshelves, and Calvin Coolidge back in the White House. So, how how influential do you think Bernays is in what we understand to be, you know, PR or communications today? 
This is a guy who lived to be an incredible 103 years old. And so his influence started at the beginning of the 20th century, and it went through the beginning of the 21st century. And very few people, I think, exerted that kind of influence for that long over everything from politics to consumer decisions as this guy did. And yet most of the world had never heard of him. Yeah, I'd never heard of Bernays before. I've been in the industry quite a few years. Can you give us an example of the influence of his work? Eddie Bernays was representing the biggest bacon manufacturers in America. And rather than doing what a typical publicist or advertising person would have done, which is saying, buy more bacon, he went out and got all the leading scientists of that era and doctors to take a survey asking them, is a healthy and a hearty breakfast something that is good for people to begin their day with? And just by using a word like hearty, who is going to disagree that a hearty breakfast was a good idea? And then Bernays on his own defined a hearty breakfast as a bacon and eggs breakfast. And he used that to reshape the whole way we think of something as important as one of our three daily meals. He defined hearty as healthy. He defined healthy and hearty as being what his clients happened to be selling. And he helped clog the arteries of generations of Americans and people around the world by doing that. My husband used to wake up on the wrong side of the bed, grim and gruff and grouchy as he faced the day ahead. But now he's bright and cheerful. It's amazing, but it's true. Since someone handed me this tip, I'm passing on to you. Fill up the bacon, sweat premium bacon, the lean mild bacon with the sweet smoke taste. Mm. So I'm, I'm British, and I'm not sure that he influenced just Americans. I mean, as a kid, we were told that we had to have a good breakfast. His influence was from Britain to America, from China to Romania to anywhere that people have been marketed and spun to believe certain things that they didn't believe in starting out. And let me give you one other simple example. Eddie Bernays was in the 1930s representing the leading booksellers in America, companies like Random House and Simon & Schuster, all the big people who sold books to the public. And he said, I can increase your sales. And they said, we don't believe it. And again, the standard publicist or marketing person would have put books on a discount and said, maybe people will buy more if we charge less, but that would have meant less profit for publishers, all kinds of conventional ways to increase the sales of books. And Bernays said, that's old style. The Bernays way of selling more books is to do what he did, which was to go out and survey all the leading contractors and builders and architects and carpenters and say, are books good for civilization? Now, I don't know what civilization is, and I don't think anybody really understood what that question meant, but obviously nobody's going to say that books are bad for society. So he got nearly 100% of all these leading people who were involved in construction to say books are good for civilization. And he went back to them and said, you can strike a blow for world civilization by building into every new home and apartment you build bookshelves. 
and he felt nature abhors a vacuum. And if you've got bookshelves, people aren't going to put cereal boxes in it. They're going to put in books. And I'm sitting right now in a study looking at built-in bookshelves where there are probably a thousand books. And I've probably read about a hundred of them but it's part of the decoration and it's part of telling anybody who visits you, I've got all these very fancy and intellectual books in my bookshelves. He knew that bookshelves would fill up with books. He knew that would increase the sales for the publishers and he knew that would earn him a fat paycheck and all three of those things happened. America is the home of storytelling. I don't think there's any doubt that when it comes to spin or lobbying or um, you know, perhaps exaggeration. It definitely, you know, comes from America. And as a Brit, you know, we always looked at America because you had scale to be able to make these stories go and work so much harder. And one of the greatest stories I've heard about Bernays is his story around Lucky Strike. Sure. So Eddie Bernays was offered a deal by the head of the American Tobacco Company. The American Tobacco Company was the biggest maker of cigarettes, Lucky Strikes and other brands. And they had done a brilliant job of cracking exactly half of the market in America and around the world for cigarettes. And that was the male half. But it was seen as unladylike for women to smoke cigarettes. And Bernays said to this guy who runs American Tobacco, I can make you rich if you promise to make me rich if I crack that female half of the market. And he knew what he needed was some big orchestrated event that was going to tap into the taboo against women smoking cigarettes and was going to help vanquish that. So what he did was, on the holiday that represents the freedom of spirit in the world, which is Easter. On Easter Sunday, down the most prominent boulevard, no offense to London, but the most prominent boulevard in the world was New York's Fifth Avenue. And on Easter Sunday, marching down Fifth Avenue were all of these debutantes that were lighting up their cigarettes. And Bernays arranged for photographers from the wire services and from leading papers around the world. He told them something big was going to happen on a very slow news day, Easter Sunday. And he dubbed what these women were doing as lighting their torches of freedom. These women were striking a blow on, again, this Easter Sunday freedom of the spirit holiday for women being able to be treated equally to men. The fact that the women didn't know that he had orchestrated this on behalf of a company like American Tobacco and the fact that the rest of the world, most of the world, didn't know how dangerous cigarettes were. But Eddie Bernays was one of the few people in the world who was privy to the health studies that the tobacco companies knew of in those days. He knew he was doing something dangerous. He had told his daughters at home if they ever found their mother's cigarettes to break them in half like brittle bones and flush them down the toilet. And he did that at the same time he was helping convince an entire generation of women to smoke cigarettes. The day after that march, the day after Easter Sunday, in just about every major newspaper in the world, there was a picture of these exceedingly elegant-looking women lighting what the headline said was their torches of freedom, striking a blow for women's liberation. It's amazing. So what made him so successful? Is there a formula behind how this all worked? So Eddie Bernays was all about tying what he called his private cause to a public cause. 
His private cause was making him rich and selling cigarettes to women. The public cause was women's liberation. And it was no accident years later that Virginia Slims, a new cigarette, devised an entire campaign around the idea of this being a liberating thing for women to smoke cigarettes. It used to be, lady, you had no rights, no right to vote, no right to property, no right to the wage you earned. That was back when you were laced in, hemmed in, and left with not a whole lot to do. You come a long way, baby, to get where you got to today. Introducing new Virginia Slims, the slim cigarette for women only, tailored for the feminine hair. On the other hand, the story doesn't end there. I think public relations can be a tool for evil, like getting women to smoke cigarettes, or for good, like weaning women from smoking cigarettes. And Bernays did both. About two generations after he had helped addict women to cigarettes. He worked on behalf of the American Lung Association to try to wean women and men from the habit he had helped create. And he said, geez, if only I had known the dangers, I would never have done what I did in the 1930s and 40s. Well, the truth is, as his own papers showed, he knew exactly what he was doing in the earlier point, and he tried to make up for it, but he also tried to fib in denying that he knew what he was doing generations later. It's quite interesting, right? Because you can you can tie that right back into where we are today. So many people that work in technology have come out saying that they apologize for producing what they produced. They apologize for producing the like button. They apologize for, you know, having done what they did and got people addicted to or created X, Y, and Z. Um, and they're now going to go and work on the other side and, and try to help prevent it. Where's the, where's the ethical line in all of this? So the ethical line is a line of convenience. The ethical line is the line of denying what they in fact did know when they created these bad habits. And it's either mea culpa or trying to um, spin their way out of the corner they've boxed themselves into. But Eddie Bernays is, to me, the perfect representation of a mass consumer culture like we have today. He is, as I say, all that's bad and all that's good about it. And I think he is an enormous red flag saying, watch what we're doing because it's going to come back and bite us. Right. And we're talking about an era that is or nearly 100 years ago, right? We're not, we're not talking about somebody that was doing this 40 years ago or 50 years ago. And I think a lot of the you know, the Mad Men era, that when we talk about and think about advertising, I think a lot of people jump to the 50s and the 60s. But we're 30 years ahead of that. There are two things about Bernays that are really unique. One is he was doing it at a more innocent era that we didn't realize we were being spun that way. But the other is he is the only practitioner that I've ever seen in the history of public relations or advertising or marketing who left behind a paper trail of everything he ever did. So when I'm telling you what he did, I'm not speculating and saying this is what I think he did and he's not around to dispute me. I'm telling you the story based on his own papers that he left to the Library of Congress. So I can go back to the topic of propaganda because, um, you know, today it's seen as a very bad word. I mean, the way that we would talk about propaganda is generally used you know, in context to some dictator or something similar. Um, 
And he said, you know, and I'm quoting from your book, the only difference between propaganda and education really is the point of view. The advocacy of what we believe in is education. The advocacy of what we don't believe in is propaganda. Is propaganda any different to what we understand today as fake news? So I think you've just raised two, the two endpoints of the way we ought to look at propaganda. One way is Joseph Goebbels is the propaganda chief for Adolf Hitler, and Eddie Bernays was very proud that Goebbels had his books, Bernays' books, on his bookshelf. And on the one hand, as a Jew, he was certainly shocked and outraged at everything that Hitler stood for. And on the other hand, the idea of Hitler having been the most effective practitioner of propaganda maybe in the history of the world, and that that propaganda was based partly on the teachings of one Edward Bernays, I think delighted Bernays. And the evils of propaganda and the evils of that seemingly innocuous statement that you read, uh, the quote from Bernays, are apparent back in the era of Hitler, and they're apparent today in the era of Trump, where fake news and the distinctions between propaganda and education, between fact and what's fake, are being muted. I think that's really dangerous, and I think that that's why studying Bernays and understanding those dangers by what he did and by looking at what he said is really important now more than ever. I couldn't agree more. And I think actually when you reference someone like Hitler, I think that you know, suddenly puts it all into perspective as to how you know, influential and dangerous this, this type of thinking can be. But what I still find astounding is how, if this isn't an individual, we're not talking about a, a, somebody who's running a corporation um, you know, with 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 employees. We're talking about an individual. And this individual is able to, you know, manipulate or control or steer people with so much influence. That's what I think is shockingly striking from this is that, again, we can draw so many parallels to where we are today. Um, are there people aside from Donald Trump that you can see that have the similar range of power and influence uh, as Bernays? So I think you can look to both sides of the political aisle and see people who are sons of Bernays in terms of their effectiveness as spinmeisters. I take the fact that he develops weapons of mass destruction very seriously. We drank beer, uh, my friends and I, the boys and girls. Yes, we drank beer. I liked beer, still like beer. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I think during his presidency, Bill Clinton could give incredibly compelling speeches on things that were true and were factual. I think he could also spin the heck out of things in a way that was mind-numbing. And I think that he understood the lessons of Eddie Bernays. All the people from Karl Rove to his Democratic counterparts, who were the spin people behind every presidential wannabe, um, have learned the lessons of Eddie Bernays, the lessons that Bernays used to help get a sourpuss like Calvin Coolidge elected president a very long time ago. And today, we just take all of this for granted in a way that is quite scary to me. So how did he use the technology of the day to his benefit? Bernays may not have had in his era the social media that we have today, 
uh, but he had the same exact devices. And Bernays was quite brilliant at understanding each new piece of technology and how that would feed into the ease that propaganda was spread, the ease at which behavior could change. But he was also really amazing at understanding our attraction to nostalgia. So in an era of the telefax, when that was the way that people communicated quickly, they sent faxes across newsrooms and across businesses. Eddie Bernays said, don't use a fax. If you really want to make an impact on people, send them a telegram because they remember this old quaint era and they may have a hundred letters and a thousand faxes on their desk, but I can assure you they're only going to have one telegram that day and you're the one that they're going to remember. And he always said, don't do what is the intuitive, think counterintuitively, and that's the way to get your message across and get through to important people. It's genius. Telegrams, stage demonstrations, he definitely knew how to capture attention. One last thing that Bernays said is maybe his most golden of all the rules was, he said every really good PR person should set their rates by charging what the CEO of a company makes. So when Eddie Bernays worked for General Motors and worked for General Electric, he charged rates comparable to what their top person made. And he wisely said, the only way those CEOs are going to take me seriously is if I'm costing them big money. And anything they spend a lot on, they, by definition, take very seriously. And he made fortunes. Fascinating. What we're, what we're talking about here, though, is, you know, uh, the sort of underlying line through everything is, is behavioral manipulation. You know, what he's a master at, obviously, is being able to get people to do what he wants them to do. Well, we're living in an era today where behavioral manipulation is, um, you know, a big part of every sort of marketing strategy. And, and interestingly, when you reference the telefax and the fax, you know, a company like MailChimp, which has built up its business around allowing people to, to get on email distribution lists and to update people, recently launched the ability to send physical postcards to people, which, again, feels like it's um, counterintuitive, but I totally understand why when everyone moved away from direct mail and moved to digital thing, there would be a need for you know, a different channel. And we, you know, history repeats itself, right? We know that. Um, well, we understand that. Um, and what, we're, what I feel like we're living through is another repetition of what potentially we saw back in the 30s with Bernays. So I think all of that's true. And yet, as complicated as technology is getting, as complicated as behavioral manipulation is getting, Bernays takes us back to really basic, simple principles. And they are the principles of Sigmund Freud. When Bernays was trying to change the behavior of women smoking cigarettes, he didn't go out there and sort of dream up that idea of undoing that taboo of it being unladylike to smoke cigarettes. He didn't dream that up on his own. He went to a disciple of Sigmund Freud's, a psychiatrist named Dr. A.A. Burl, and he went to Burl and said, what is it that's keeping women from smoking cigarettes? And the psychiatrist said, it's as simple as this taboo. And Bernays said, how do we undo the taboo? And the psychiatrist says, we do something that shows that it's not unladylike, that we just reverse the taboo. Let's just talk about Freud, because Bernays was the double nephew of Freud, right? He was Sigmund Freud's nephew through his mother 
and through his father, which meant that brother and sister married brother and sister. And he took Sigmund Freud's ideas on why people behave the way they do and reshaped that behavior on behalf of some of the biggest corporations and the most powerful politicians over the course of the 20th century. And that was quite extraordinary. And his uncle, Sigmund Freud, was some combination of shocked and delighted by his nephew. He was shocked by him because among the many things Bernays proposed was taking Freud's complicated ideas on psychoanalysis and on human behavior and putting them in the form of the kinds of ditties that housewives and business people and others could relate to. And doing that kind of simplification was shocking to a serious scientist like Freud. On the other hand, it was his shocking nephew, Edward Bernays, who helped Freud raise the money that he needed to escape the Nazis in Vienna and make it to London. So we might never really have heard of Sigmund Freud, or certainly not have seen all of his extraordinary works if it wasn't Eddie Bernays out there helping bail out his uncle. So the world would have been quite a different place if that didn't happen. And in the writings that you found on Bernays, is there correspondence between himself and Freud? So there was. And, the, and on the one hand, their correspondence was really endearing. Uh, Bernays remembered having walked in the mountains of Austria, I think it was, with his uncle one summer and had all these sort of um, innocent, childlike memories. But Bernays could never stop there. It was never enough to be nostalgic and sentimental and emotional with him. He had to use that to do something that on the one hand was hoped for by Bernays, I think, to really do something to help his uncle. And on the other hand, he had to manipulate his uncle in a way that was going to help Bernays. And so people over the years started calling Eddie Bernays a professional nephew, which meant that in the first five minutes that you met him, he managed to drop the fact that he was Sigmund Freud's double nephew. And when his daughter got married to this wonderful biographer, Anne Bernays marrying Justin Kaplan, it was Eddie Bernays put out a press release saying the grandniece of Sigmund Freud is marrying this important, you know, New York publishing guy. And he just never knew when to stop. Bernays was a principal driver in the origins of lobbying, right? He was. He founded that or he helped create the blueprint and the playbook for lobbying and for spin as early as the World War I era when he was working for the Office of Wartime Information and he helped take America to war. Now, when we think back to the World Wars, the reason we went to war with World War II was obvious. It was to save Britain. It was to stop the Nazis. It was a clear case of right versus wrong. The issues were less clear-cut with World War I and why America ought to get involved in this battle between European powers was less obvious. Bernays helped create the propaganda that took us to war. He helped rally the country behind um, a movement to stop these Hun-like uh, Germans that it was a question of saving the democracies we could relate to the best in terms of countries like Britain, but Bernays understood that just the normal arguments as conveyed by 
state political leaders were not going to do enough to rally the public, and so he helped rally them. And he did that so early. The idea that we were using that kind of spin, people weren't used to it. They didn't realize the way they were being manipulated then. Which is so different from where we are now, where we just assume that there's political spin in every piece of political news. We've learned about Russia's attempts to influence our elections. And Bernays also has a tie-in. In the 1950s, Bernays got involved in trying to overturn a government on behalf of a fruit company. Can you tell us a bit about Guatemala? We didn't get that he was working for right-wing forces and for the CIA to overturn the popularly elected government in Guatemala in the 1950s. He, he was there doing things on behalf of United Fruit Company that were so brazenly about earning money for him and for United Fruit Company that the idea that we were overthrowing a government that had been elected in Guatemala was just shocking. And what he did there helped raise an alarm in Cuba that the Cubans sure as heck weren't going to let happen what he was doing in Guatemala happen in Cuba. So I think he may have overturned the government in Guatemala, but he helped the government in Cuba dig in for another half a century. He was out there in foreign affairs and domestic affairs, in political affairs and in commercial affairs, changing the way America behaved, not because it was the right thing to do, but because it was the lucrative thing to do. Right. I mean, it's interesting, again, though, that we talk about people now understanding when they're being spun, but I think people like spin, don't they? I mean, everybody likes a really good narrator. Somebody loves it when, you know, somebody tells a good story and, you know, they'll, they'll win hearts and minds. Um, we, we still love spin. So we do when we call it spin, and when we call it being lied to, we're offended. And I think there's a right. narrow line there. And I think that, that it's, again, a little bit like what Bernays was saying about propaganda. We like it when it's being used on our behalf, and we hate it when the other guys are using it to beat us. Right. So we live, I mean, we're, we're in L.A., and um, what fascinates me with L.A. is as you drive through the city, you can see the, the, the remnants of the old metro railway stations and the remnants of you know, where there was a, a transport system that at one point, you know, was lobbied for to, to be removed in place of the, the automobile industry. Again, I think a disaster for, for Los Angeles, but something that we can probably pinpoint back to our good old friend, Eddie, right, with uh, his lobbying for uh, Mack Trucks. Um, so he was lobbying for Mack trucks. He was lobbying for a U.S. highway system. Um, whether or not he got involved in tearing up the train tracks in L.A., which I think is just so shockingly horrible that it's tough to believe, um, he was involved in precursor steps that led to that. And everybody at the time, it looked like, geez, what a great thing. Let's connect America by building highways. Well, that money came at the expense of public transportation. And one of the reasons why Europe has the brilliant public transportation system that it does and that America has instead a brilliant highway system is because partly we were a big country and maybe highways made a certain sense, but it was also because Eddie Bernays was there lobbying on behalf of a client that was helping make him rich. Wow. So what do you think is, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a huge question, but what's his, what's his legacy? What has he left us with? I mean, this is a man that seems to have had an unbelievable influence. But what does amaze me is how, how few people seem to know anything about him. 
but the implications of what he what he constructed is around us everywhere, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty much in every country that we that we have on the planet today. So we're talking today at a moment when Boris Johnson may be about to be elected the leader of the Conservative Party and become the Prime Minister of Britain. We're talking at a moment when Donald Trump is the President in the United States, when bluster and invention have displaced uh, facts in so many parts of the world. And I think we can't lay everything on Eddie Bernays' doorstep, but we can say the spin that he pioneered, the natural and scary logical conclusion of it is what we have going on all around the world today. Right. And we also know that, um, you know, the influence that, that Bernays has had, I think, is only relevant because of the effects. And, you know, for corporations, and this is the same today, I think, you know, the everyone's quite aware of what happens, but when they can see and it's demonstrated how powerful a tool can be, let's take social media as an example, then even though people are quite conscious of the side effects of it, I think I'm more than happy to use this influence in order to, you know, for financial gain. You know, how can we change it? Does, what does business need to do in order to you know, reconsider, you know, how, how we're using these tools? So I think it's not going to be business that stimulates a change. It's going to be the public revolting in stimulating a change. One of the reasons that I'm eager for people to understand Bernays' spin is so that we can begin to unspin things. And understanding how our behavior is being manipulated is a first step in saying we demand to know truth. That, to me, is what, at its best, the press is all about. But if we're in an era where even the New York Times and network television have come under question, um, I think that we've got to look for new ways of insisting that we unspin our world. And I think restoring the press of the media is an essential way because we're all too busy doing what we do every day to go out there and tell people or, uh, who's telling the truth and who isn't. Right, that's a heavy legacy. Are there any places where you see his fingerprints today that are a little lighter? Shortly before we started talking today, a package showed up at my doorstep from a company called UPS, this wonderful company that delivers in their brown trucks packages all across America and around the world. And one of the things that Bernays claimed, I started at a certain point um, doubting, you know, wondering if this guy who was spinning all this stuff, was he spinning his own story and his own influence? And one of the things he said he did is that he was the one who came up with a color brown for UPS trucks to be painted. And he said, I did that because I thought brown was sort of the color of trees and the color of nature. And rather than having some more glaring color, it would look like it was part of the neighborhood. And seeing the friendly brown UPS truck would bring warm feelings in the customers who were getting deliveries. And I thought, that's a great story, but that can't be true. And I asked the people who were there at the beginning, the historians who understood UPS, the company executives, and they said, yes, in fact, it was Edward Bernays who we had brought in to do that. Brown says make your life easy. Brown tells me you have all the choices you want. Brown says to me, get your shipments to your customers when they need it, where they need it. Shipping on your schedule. What can Brown do for you? And he's the one who told us to paint him brown. 
Something similar happened. He represented a disease. The disease was MS, which as we all know, or many of us know, is multiple sclerosis. And Bernays said, I'm the one who took that mouthful of, the, of a disease, multiple sclerosis, and said the only way that's going to become part of the American lexicon is to simplify it. We're going to call it MS. Another story, another, I thought, spin. So I went to the woman who was the initial head of the MS Society of America and said, did Bernays have any role in anything you did? And she said, yeah, he was a genius who took us from multiple sclerosis to MS. So I don't want to suggest that he's influenced everything. I don't want to suggest that everything he told us is a truth. But I want to say just at the point that I started doubting him, he showed me that he, in fact, had had the influence for good and for bad that he claims. Well, it's been fascinating, Larry. I do uh, really appreciate your time. I think it's been one of the most interesting stories that I've heard around advertising. This seems to resonate so much with where we are today. We are in the ultimate spun era, and we should have fun by looking at Eddie Bernays' stories because he was nothing if not incredibly entertaining and fun, but he's also really a serious object lesson, and I appreciate your taking the time today. Thanks. Rachel, can we keep going or do you think we have to close it down? Nope. Uh, this is the last episode of the season. Okay. And that's our episode today. Special thanks to Larry Tai for enlightening us on Bernays' profound impact on society. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby. Our supervising producer is John Asante. And our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really helps spread the word. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Neon Hum Media. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of Influence is brought to you by Meal No More, the food replacement service in a bottle. Now, we're joined by Matt, who runs our sales team, who has been trialing Food No More for probably the last two or three weeks, right, Matt? That's correct, Damien. I'm on week three and I've never felt better. You look amazing. Thank you. I've actually lost about 35 pounds. Wow, was that the intention? I live alone. I've got a bachelor listeners out there it's a nice size studio but you know you can only do so much with a hot plate but uh, meal no more just revolutionized time and the actual meal prep process to where i just have one test tube per day and that's my source so you no longer need a kitchen no no more i never had a kitchen but if i had one i could get rid of it and convert it into a man cave or a real bedroom where do you sleep now in the corner of the bachelor matt what's the amazing discount code and the discount that we've got from Meal No More to give to all of our listeners. So right now, uh, Meal No More will ship you a week's supply, breakfast, lunch. Can you imagine what the third one is? Brunch? No, a late night snack. And so you can get uh. three of those, three different sources for a full week. And that's with the promo code Meal No More. It's the name of the company. It's, it wasn't really well thought out. Meal No More. You'll never need a kitchen again. I quite like that. that.